creating a diverse employee base, what retailers can expect from the holiday season, and an update on how ports are handling current import volumes. Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Signode. You've designed, tested, produced. We'll protect it from here. The Signode team of technical and service professionals will be on site at PAC Expo International in Chicago. Come see how the Signode process and products deliver optimal outcomes for customers, protecting their automation investments. Visit Signode in PAC Expo booths S3742 and N6015. October 23rd through 26th. As usual, our DC Velocity senior editors Ben Ames and Victoria Kickham will be along to provide their insights into the top stories of this week. But to begin today, with today's low rates of unemployment, employers would be smart to cast their nets widely to find a diverse set of potential employees, including hiring people with disabilities. To find out more, here's Victoria with today's guest. Victoria? Thanks, Dave. Our guest today is author, speaker, and human resources professional, Danny Lynn Fountain. She's here to talk about National Disability Employment Awareness Month and why this should be a key part of any company's strategy to promote diversity in the workplace. Welcome, Danny Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. We're, we're thrilled to have you here. Can you start by uh, telling us a bit about National Disability Employment Awareness Month? and you know why this is an important reminder for employers in all industries. Yeah, definitely. So National Disability Employment Awareness Month really seeks to, as the name suggests, bring awareness to this segment of the population and shatter some myths and stigmas uh, that we just have societally around disabled individuals and holding gainful employment and um, it also is Invisible Disabilities Week this week. Uh, and so both of these in tandem seek to bring awareness to employment opportunities and the ways that these individuals can be really successful in the workplace and that sometimes we may not even be aware that individuals we're working with on a day-to-day -day basis do hold disabilities and that impacts the way they experience work. Yeah, so I, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about that. So, you know, this month and, and the week that you mentioned, you know, obviously includes people with a wide range of disabilities. Can you talk about the scope of this issue and how it may have changed in recent years and, and maybe talk about the term you just mentioned, invisible disabilities? Definitely. I think traditionally when we think of disability, our minds immediately go to a wheelchair. And that wheelchair is the symbol that we use in many different functional and structural components of our day-to-day -day life to talk about disability. But it spreads a lot more than just those physical disabilities we might immediately think of. Disability includes chronic illness in that you're impacted uh, in your day-to-day -day living through that chronic illness that you might have things like lupus or myasthenia gravis. Uh, it also impacts neurodiversity. So we're seeing uh, conversations around ADHD and autism and schizophrenia be a lot more prevalent in the day-to-day. -day. All of those fall under the neurodiversity bucket, which overlaps with the disability bucket as well. Um, so all of these 
identities that have fallen under disability haven't necessarily ever changed. They've always been there. Uh, but what is changing is as a society, as a workforce, our comfortability with talking about these topics and better supporting individuals who are disabled. How does this fit into sort of a, the broader topic of developing, you know, a more diverse um, and inclusive workplace? Um, as an HR professional, how do you kind of address that piece of it? Yeah, there is a stat in the Harvard Business Review from a couple of years ago that says that 90% of companies do consider DEI a priority in the way that they're thinking about structuring their business and different components, but only 4% actually include disability in that, um, which is unfortunate because disability, similarly to identifying as LGBTQIA+, is a very intersectional identity. You can hold it in addition to race, gender, uh, and a number of other identities. So it, it crosses uh, a lot of boundaries that we kind of set societally. So when we're thinking about disability, uh, just having provisions for addressing disability at work makes everybody's experience better. I keep coming back to this stat that I saw recently that something like 60% of millennials watch Netflix with captions. I would assume that not 60% of millennials all identify as deaf. And so when we're thinking about disability and accessibility and inclusion, a lot of these steps that we're taking at work are good for everyone and help disabled individuals have better experiences at work. This should show up from the way that we approach candidates that we're considering to hire, all the way through what an employee's day-to-day -day experience might look like at work. What are some strategies employers can use to reach out to this community of workers, um, this very broad community of workers that we're talking about? You know, Are there any sort of do's and don'ts in the workplace um, that you could just sort of encapsulate for us? Yeah, one big component to be aware of is coming back to that invisible disability piece. Uh, it's not immediately going to be obvious and individuals may not have disclosed their disabilities and they're not required to either. Each of us that hold a, a disability may choose to share or not share that. So when thinking about approaching this community of workers and in general, the biggest step you can take is think about the ways that you're trying to engage with the population. For so many of my HR colleagues and I, the default outreach method to candidates is reaching out in a LinkedIn message or in an email and immediately converting that to a phone call, asking them to set up 20 minutes to chat with us on the phone about the role and what the interview process will look like. But a phone call isn't always accessible and not just for the deaf or hard of hearing, but also for those who might have ADHD or autism or other things that impact the way that they present themselves. So just being innovative and inclusive in the way that you're doing your initial candidate outreach is important. And then also considering where you're identifying candidates from, not defaulting just to, you know, career fairs or open hour sessions that many individuals with disabilities might choose not to attend, A, because they're not accessible, or B, because they can't present themselves in the best light in that manner. So it's all about creativity and trying to cast the broadest net to include everyone.
Yeah, I was just going to say that it sounds like, uh, you know, creative strategies um, are, the, are the best way to go here. Are there any um, particular industries or types of companies that are, you know, either better at or for, further ahead in trying to attract and hire workers in this demographic? Yeah, I'm going to say category of company rather than industry. Any company that's able to offer remote work tends to be a little bit further ahead. Uh, the reason for that being uh, remote work is inherently more accessible. Thinking about an individual who has a chronic illness, they may have a higher volume of doctor's appointments than the average person might, and remote work allows that to fit better into their day or their medical care to fit better into their day. For individuals with autism, such as myself, who are very introverted, uh, even more so than your stereotypical introvert, Remote work enables us to do our best work without having to be, quote unquote, always on. Um, so inherently, companies that are able to offer remote work really tend to be a lot more successful. Uh, but there are definitely solutions as well for companies who uh, need for structural or tactical reasons that in-person experience as well. Right. And our, our audience is supply chain and logistics professionals, which covers the whole gamut. You know, they're remote and also, you know, in-person on the ground workers. Any any final messages you'd like to kind of leave um, our audience with, which is pretty broad as well, um, in terms of, you know, celebrating this or recognizing this month and, and sort of proceeding forward with all of this in mind? I think the biggest thing is just because something has been done a certain way for a long time doesn't mean it's the best way. And being brave enough to try something new that is more inclusive uh, can be tremendously successful, especially in an industry where inclusion of disabled employees might not be as prevalent as other industries. It's a real opportunity to be a thought leader in the space just by being a little creative. Terrific. Um, well, Danny Lynn, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We have been talking with uh, speaker, author, and human resources professional, Danny Lynn Fountain. Back to you, Dave. Thank you, Danny Lynn and Victoria. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. Ben, you reported this week on some of the expectations for retailers in the upcoming holiday season. What can you tell us? Yeah, exactly. Uh, one of the main lessons that we all learned from the pandemic years is that uh, the level of change that we've seen makes markets really unpredictable. Uh, so that's typically the time of the season now when we get a lot of economic forecasts for peak spending, uh, but it's harder than ever. And when we head into the home stretch now, before this coming uh, post-pandemic peak season, uh, experts are starting to get a little bit better clarity on at least the process of what has changed in stores and how that might affect the fulfillment operations that make them all work. First, from the consumer's point of view, we saw a shopper's survey from IBM that found that shoppers worldwide, not just US, are trading sort of a reduced pandemic concern uh, in terms of mingling with others in brick and mortar stores uh, in exchange for rising stress about other stuff, uh, economic conditions, particularly like inflation, uh, gas prices, supply chain delays. So in response, uh, apparently consumers are making things like holiday travel and shopping plans earlier than usual. Uh, and it, also they're seeking out more flexible return policies. So basically they're trying to hedge their bets. Uh, some of that 
continues an existing trend. Uh, we've seen for some years now the traditional big spike of a winter peak shopping season flatten a little bit into a broader curve across the calendar. Uh, so that continues that, but other aspects show some new change in the market. Since uh, in that IBM survey, uh, nearly seven in 10 respondents said they're gonna opt for brands or retailers that offer things like free cancellations, order changes, and easy returns. Well, Ben, we all know that shoppers really want those flexible terms. And of course, they love things like free shipping for e-commerce. But as we know, nothing's really free in logistics. So how are companies managing those demands? Uh, ain't that the truth? Uh, yeah, <laughs> this free shipping uh, term uh, is something that, that's always been a little funny to hear. Uh, but we did get some color on that. We saw another study, this one from the logistics software vendor Manhattan Associates. Uh, that was studying how retailers are, um, as they phrased it, recalibrating their sales and fulfillment strategies to keep up with a more hybrid marketplace where the line is getting blurred between phys physical and digital commerce. Uh, so that means that companies have an increasing level of interconnection between their online and their in-store functions. Uh, that's easy to say, but not so easy to do. Uh, one of the biggest challenges apparently is that they lack a single view of the inventory. So uh, as, as one particularly uh, precise example, uh, barely half of the US respondents in Manhattan Associates study said that they can support a mixed inventory pool like buy in-store and then return online or buy online and return in-store. So you can see how those would, would mix the two streams and that's a, a difficult thing for uh, at least half the retail retailers out there to be able to square those numbers on their accounting sheets. Uh, to solve that problem, companies said they're putting more emphasis on a really old approach to retail, which is just checking stock availability. 66%, uh, you know, two thirds said that was among the most important customer facing duties performed by their shop assistants, actually. Um, ideally, They'll, in the 21st century here, they'll do that work with in-store handheld devices. Uh, so that can try to provide a consolidated view of the inventory across not just that one store, but across the larger network of additional shops and DCs and in transit. So it's hard, but uh, that's what shoppers want. Uh, the survey also found that shoppers increasingly expect shop assistants to be able to check availability in a nearby store if a product is out of stock where they are. Uh, or even order that product for later home delivery or collection at a different store. So uh, we're really seeing the, those omni-channel streams uh, start to be more tightly braided together. Right, and, and customers have come to learn to expect that great customer service that we see today, and it's, I guess, up to the retailers to figure out how to make that happen. Thanks, Ben. Glad to do it. And Victoria, you wrote this week about our nation's ports. Some are showing some easing volumes, while some are still feeling continued congestion. Can you share some details of what's going on at the ports? Absolutely, yeah. So um, congestion at U.S. ports continues to ease, and this follows, you know, the massive backups we saw earlier in the year, especially on the West Coast. But as you say, pockets of delays and disruptions remain, and they continue to cause headaches as peak shipping season unfolds. 
Um, and that's according to some recent industry reports from this week that analyzed uh, conditions in both September and October. So uh, first, the, the 10 largest U.S. ports saw a 5.5% drop in inbound container volume in September, and that marks the biggest decline in more than two years. And that's according to the McCown report, which was released midweek. The decline was driven by a 17% drop in inbound volume on the West Coast over the past uh, 27 months. The report also noted a 24% reduction in ships waiting for berths compared to August, as well as a continued shift in trade activity from west uh, to east. Our listeners will recall uh, the huge backups of vessels earlier this year that I just mentioned. Uh, at one point, you had more than 100 ships uh, waiting off the coast of Southern California, for example. But uh, things have changed. The ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach accounted for two-thirds of waiting vessels back in January, and now they just account for 8%. Uh, and the ports of Savannah, New York, and Houston had the highest number of waiting ships in September, and cargo volume there continues to rise. Some other reports echoed those uh, results. Third-party logistics service provider ITS Logistics pointed to a bunch of problems along the Gulf Coast this month in its fourth quarter outlook report, which was also released midweek. Uh, the region is dealing with disruptions from Hurricane Ian, of course, but it's also grappling with higher cargo volumes. And uh, the report, the authors say this is because freight forwarders and importers are relocating business to that area as well. Um, ITS noted that as of this past January, Port Houston, for example, experienced a 27% rise in its TEU tally year over year. Um, that's a measure of um, container volume, and that's uh, directly because of increased uh, container imports. Victoria, what's driving that shift in volume from west to east? Well, the backups on the West Coast earlier really helped uh, push volume east, um, and at the same time, many East Coast ports had already been gearing up to handle larger ships, um, especially in places like Georgia and South Carolina, so that um, has led to increased volume there. Both of those situations, so the delays in the West and an influx in the East, have also helped push companies toward the Gulf. Um, and it's causing a shortage of space, equipment, and chassis, especially in Houston, uh, where container facilities there handle about 70% of all U.S. Gulf Coast uh, container traffic, according to that IS ITS report. Um, these and other reports are calling for overall lower inbound volumes over the next few months. And, of course, we've seen consumer demand for goods soften recently, along with the cooling economy. So the expectation is that, you know, any remaining congestion, um, you know, should be cleared up by the end of the year. Other problems persist, though. Both these and other reports pointed to the ongoing problem of inflation and its continued effects on the supply chain. Uh, it doesn't seem like that will ease anytime soon. And as we've discussed before, warehouse space remains tight as well. So that's something um, the supply chain companies will have to continue to deal with. Right. So I guess there's some good and some bad in looking at what's going on at the ports. Bad that volumes are somewhat slowing, but also good that our ports might be returning to normal operations after a very hectic time the past year and a half. Exactly. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. We encourage listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on these and other supply chain stories and check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. Thanks again to Danny Lynn Fountain for being our guest. We welcome your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. Our new episodes are uploaded each Friday. 
And speaking of subscribing, check out our sister podcast series, Supply Chain in the Fast Lane. It's co-produced by the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals and Supply Chain Quarterly. Our new season has just kicked off. We're just a couple of weeks into it, and we have new episodes each week dealing with attracting and retaining labor in our supply chains. Subscribe to Supply Chain in the Fast Lane wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Signode. You've designed, tested, produced. We'll protect it from here. The Signode team of technical and service professionals will be on site at Pack Expo International in Chicago. Come see how the Signode process and products deliver optimal outcomes for customers, protecting their automation investments. Visit Signode in Pack Expo booths S3742 and N6015, October 23rd through 26th. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters when we look at expected impacts on transportation from peak shipping season. Be sure to join us. Until then, have a great week.